Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight. I'm your host, David Collis. I want to shout out to my audience. Thank you for listening. You're the lifeblood of my show. Also, I would like you to please click the Nightlight Blog Talk Radio follow button and click the subscribe button on my Nightlight YouTube channel. That helps me know you're listening. Plus, you'll get all the updates. My guest tonight is Corinne Alyssa. She's the best-selling author of Journey of a Prophet. She is also a spiritual advisor clinical hypnotherapist, teacher, and energy practitioner. She has two soon-to-be-released books on Amazon, the first, Mary and Joseph, An Uncommon Couple, and the second is 111 Quotes of Wisdom from Jesus. Welcome to the show, Corinne. Thank you, David. It's so good to be here with you. This is fantastic. Uh-huh, so, me too. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. You know, you, you've got this fantastic book, The Journey of a Prophet, and in it there was so much information in there that was all very new to me when I read it, and yet at the same time there's a lot of similarities. You know, I, be, I was the author of Interviewing Jesus the Man, and one of the things that I was interested in exploring was his um, those missing years. And in the journey of the prophet, you really explored and um, those that time, but you seem to have done it in a very different way than the way that I did it. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about your relationship with Jesus and how you came to Him, or how sure. He came to you. Yeah, sure. Actually, that is, that is the truth of it. He came to me. When I was a little girl, I grew up in very difficult circumstances. Um, you know, on the outside, it might have looked like an idyllic uh, childhood, but it, it was not. Uh, a lot of abuse, and I spent a lot of time in my room crying and uh, just um, feeling bereft. He came to my bed one evening, sat down on the bed with me, and began talking, and we forged a relationship over those years he would help me when I was uh, laying there in the bed crying. Sometimes he would pat my head. 
Sometimes he would sing me a song. Sometimes we'd just talk. But all in all, it was his constancy, his his uh, straightforward nature, his love that <clears throat> kept me going, kept me going all those years. There were a few years during this long life that I've lived that, lived that uh, I uh, ignored him for one reason or another, but he was always there and always came back whenever I asked for him. Now, in the 1980s, I was a trance channeler and would... Uh, he was one of the beings that I would uh, channel, trance channel for people. But I stopped chan- trance channeling after a while and, and just got to where he and I would just talk. We would just talk, and I talk with him almost every day. So the journey of a prophet is a collaboration between uh, Jesus, I call him Yeshua, uh, so a collaboration between Yeshua and I, um, regarding his life. So it's the first 40 years of his life while he was walking in a physical body here on this earth plane. And everything that he's told me has uh, has gone, you know, well, not everything, but most of the things he's told me has, have gone into the book. Uh, you made a very interesting reference to the fact that he lived for 40 years, and that definitely is different than what you would find in the New Testament. Oh, definitely, definitely. He was in his 38th year, according to him, uh, at the time of the crucifixion. So he was actually born in the year 5 AD. And so even though that uh, event took place in the 33rd year of our calendar, he was actually 30, 38 years at that time. And he stayed around on this earth plane in a in a very physical-like body for a couple of years after that, helping everybody that he he loved and cared for um, get on with the work that they were going to get on with. But then he moved uh, back into the dimension that he's living in now. That's another uh, bombshell here. So in the, the New Testament, again, we see that Jesus resurrected and that he would appear to several people. But it it seems as though that was a, for a very short period of time. In fact, in, once you start the um, the book of Acts, Jesus ascended, and so we really don't know at what point he ascended versus at what point he was crucified and then he was resurrected. So you're saying that there's roughly around five years. Um, it's it's a it was a couple of years. It was a couple of years. Couple of yeah. years. Yeah, and the the resurrection event uh, wasn't didn't go down really in in the way, according to Yeshua it didn't go down in the way that it's presented in our uh, common mythology, if you will. Okay, it's, so now uh, that that raises all kinds of new issues too, because this is what I was <laughs> dealing with: is that you know you have the, the gospels. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's the purpose of the Gospels? What are they trying to tell us? And I found myself asking myself, what's there? And then just as importantly, what's not there? But Uh you're now kind of filling in some blanks here, and you are saying that there's some information about Jesus that differs from what is in the New Testament Gospel. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Um, And I want to preface what I'm about to say with, you know, when I went in, when I began writing this book, I was definitely of the belief that 
99% of what's in the New Testament was wrong. And uh, now I don't believe that. I believe that much of it is is quite based in truth. Uh, but there are there are some misconceptions. Uh, there are some outright inconsistencies with truth. And and then there's you know some things that were just made up by the church. So um, the crucifixion. Well, here's the bombshell. He didn't die on the cross. He was still wow. alive when they took him down from the cross. Uh, according to Yeshua, because when he was in the east, living in the east, uh, at one of the uh, temples that he learned uh, lots of wonderful things, one of the things he learned was how to uh, take his body down to a state where it was near death, where it looked like it was dead. And he did that while he was on the cross, and that was to save himself in fact, the entire act of the crucifixion was to save himself from actual absolute death. There were many beings that were after him. Um, there were uh, three important groups that were after him. One was Caiaphas, and, and uh, of the, the head of the Sanhedrin at the time, was definitely after Yeshua. He was... He wanted him dead. Uh, he couldn't stand his teachings. He thought that they would bring down the rule of law, and uh, he was quite fervent about that. The other was uh, Herod. Herod would have easily seen Yeshua's head chopped off. And uh, the third was a being that we do not see in the Bible at all, but he was a Roman commander called Oranos, and, uh, or Oranos. I'm not sure which way it's actually pronounced, but Oranos was a commander, Roman commander, who had a personal vendetta against Yeshua and would come to the family compound where Yeshua lived, oh, just over and over and over. And in the book, several of the things that Oranos did to uh, to Yeshua during that during those years are is outlined in the book. For example, one time Yeshua sent a a uh, a note to off to his uh, cousin John the Baptist, who was in prison at the time, and he wanted to ask uh, John the Baptist, you know, is there anything you'd like me to do for you while you're in this state? Anything you know, business you'd like me to handle, or anyone you'd like me to talk to? And um, before that note got to uh, uh, John the Baptist, um, Oranos cut off the hand of the messenger that was taking the note uh, to him, killed him, and brought the hand and the note back to Yeshua, screaming at him about, you know, what is this note all about? What are you actually trying to do here? And threw the hand at Yeshua's chest. So, you know, Oranos was a really nasty guy. And he was not uh, not adverse to causing real, um, you know, evil to be done. Those three beings, Caiaphas, Herod, and Oranos, all wanted Yeshua to be dead. And his est- Yeshua's estimation was that if I don't do something to keep myself from dying outright, I will be dead within a few months. 
So he orchestrated, uh, with the help of the Creator, everything that came down over Passover that year. See, the way that I was looking at it when I wrote my last chapter of my book, I, I realized that he made a decision to do what he wanted to do on his terms. And yes. so now we're seeing, you know, yeah, so, and it was, I keep, when I kept looking at the Gospels and I kept understanding Jesus, everything seemed to be based off of what Jesus wanted done and what his terms were. So he always kept pushing and doing things based off of the fact that he was going to be in charge and he wasn't going to allow himself to be taken over by somebody by happen chance. So Yes. Yes, you were absolutely correct there. Absolute. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I have never heard of um, Oranis, so uh, he must have – I mean, this is very different than what you hear about with, like, the Roman centurion in the New Testament where he's asking – I think it was the centurion asked Jesus if he would save his daughter or friend uh, from sickness or death, and Jesus was able to do it remotely. Um, but, you know, here's another person in here that just must have been actually quite vicious and mean. And when I was doing my research into the, the Romans, it, there was a a real nastiness to them. And Pilate was no angel either. So I think the New Testament Gospels were sanitized from Roman, um, kind of the Roman viciousness. Well, I th- I think in a lot of ways it was. However, even Yeshua says said to me, and I and I think it's in the book that um, aside from Oranos and a few other individuals, Rome itself was not against Yeshua. In fact, they held him actually in quite high regard. You see, the Roman spirituality was very very different than the Jews, of course, at the time. And they they had a real strong uh, affinity for healers. They believed in healers. And they saw, and Pilate saw Yeshua as a healer. Pilate didn't want to put, put Yeshua through the crucifixion. Yeshua pushed it. Yeshua made it happen because Pilate said, I have nothing against you. You've done nothing wrong. I don't want to do this. Um, you know, let me go have my breakfast. And Yeshua said, "No, you, you. I got to do what I got to do, and you got to do what you got to do." And uh, made it made it happen through the strength of His will, uh, as you as you gleaned very uh, rightly, David. Yeshua's will was strong, the strongest will of any person uh, at that time. I think anybody, I mean, the way that I looked at it, it was anybody who was interested in doing something that Jesus was uh, attempting to do would have to have a very large uh, ego, and he would have a very strong sense of determination. So that kind of helped me understand his personality. You know, he just mm-hmm. knew that he can do it, and he did it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no was not an answer for him. So, and he kept, and then part of the the ministry was. Uh, more of like a show and tell. He was showing people what to do and how to do it, as well as speaking, right, and telling yes. stories. Yes, yes, definitely, yeah. He, so he tell was us a, a little bit about. Uh, go go ahead. ahead. No, no. Oh, go I was going to say, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe you can fill in a little bit more of the the blanks uh, when it comes to 
his time abroad and what what kind of led him up to leaving his home. So again, in my book, I realized that he left home. Based off of his sayings, I was able to determine um, some of the influences of his, those sayings, and I kept coming up against uh, and kept noticing a lot of influence from the East. So I saw mm-hmm. Confucianism, I saw Taoism, I saw Hinduism, and I saw Buddhism, and I think that his his ministry was a Buddhist practice of letting go of the ego and non-attachment, and um, as he became less, the father became more, and I felt that that was a very Buddhist kind of idea. So I I understood, based off of just looking at those influences, that he had to have spent time in the East. And in your book, you spent a lot, I mean, you spent like almost half of the book of what those years were like for him. So maybe you can go yes. through and talk a little bit about that. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. What caused uh, Yeshua uh, to go to the East is is uh, kind of interesting. He He wanted to go to school. Of course, he was very into, you know, learning. He one of the, you know, metaphors he said is, "I took to knowledge like uh, sand takes to water." Uh, he just had high intellect, very very smart guy, very very interested in learning everything that he could learn about the world and how the world worked. Now, in of course, he studied Torah, but he also studied something that's also not in our history books. But he says that his family's uh, tradition was to also study some older texts that were the old bone religion. Now, I've said some people have read this in the book and gotten all up in my face because. Bone wasn't uh, established here in the West as a as a religion until it tried to become a part of the Buddhist religion in the 1800s. But in fact, Bone as a religion uh, began as a pagan religion um, several thousand years ago, and it's that religion uh, which was which became part of the Buddhist tradition eventually was uh, was taught along with Torah in uh, in Jesus' tradition, in Joseph's tradition. So Yeshua had already learned some of this thing, and they got a letter from some people in Kapilyavashtu. Uh, and if anybody knows what Kapilyavashtu is, that is the town where uh, Gautama Buddha was born and raised. And so there's a u- there was a university there, and they got a letter uh, Joseph got a letter that said, um, we'd really like for your son to come and study with us because they had uh, they were watching him, they'd heard of him, they knew that he was coming, uh, they'd been waiting for him to become old enough. And uh, Yeshua was just like, yeah, 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 university with, you know, reams of knowledge, yeah, let me go, let me go, let me go. But he had to finish getting ready for rabbinical before he could go. So uh, by the time he was 14, he'd finished his rabbinical. And um, he was going to be a rabbi, but the but the temple priest said, you can't be a rabbi until you're a little older. You're a little young to actually take up a post. So he said, great, I'm going off to university. So when he was 14, Joseph walked him down to Aqaba where he got on a, a ferry, took him to the Red Sea, 
took a boat down to uh, Aden uh, and took a boat then to Krakola, which is now uh, part of Pakistan, and um, from there walked to uh, Nepal, what's now part of Nepal and Kapilavastu, where the university was. He lived there for a couple of years, surpassing all the other students, of course, because of his high intellect and um, became a teacher there for a little while. And after a little while, it's like it just wasn't enough for him. Um, he knew that there was more for him to do, and it wasn't to stay the rest of his life as being a teacher at this university. So he went off on a journey. And according to Yeshua, that journey started with a most magical and wonderful event. The uh, head of the university took Yeshua aside and said, look, I know who you are. I know what you're here to do, and I know that you're not supposed to be here forever. So here's something I've been holding on to for like 50 years. It was a letter written by Gautama Buddha and left with the university for 500 years. That text, uh, it was actually a map and he gave it to Yeshua, and Yeshua used that map to go to find a place called the Temple of Man. At the Temple of Man is where he first began to learn how to truly manipulate our world. I mean, if he wanted to turn water into wine, that's how he learned. That's where he learned it. He learned how to use the raw resources of our world. Uh, and manipulate them in any way that he wanted to. When he was finally and, done and that was there, the I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, and that was at the Temple of Man. The Temple of Man is what he called it. Yes. Was that a whole other was that a whole other set of people and scholars and devotees and you know gurus there? Yes, it was a whole whole group of people that lived there. Yeah. And he just learned a lot. He had a a personal teacher there called Manwa, and Manwa um, taught him everything until Yeshua had an ascension event. See, Yeshua had actually three ascension events in his lifetime. I write about two of them in the book. Uh, One we left out because it's just like one of the others and redundancy. The book's long enough. Uh, but he had, but this was one. The first ascension event was at the Temple of Man, and he had, you know, surpassed this world. Uh, he completely, as the, uh, he went to a place where he met the Creator face to face, and the Creator said, "Look, you have become the complete embodiment of love. The complete. There's, there's. That's all. I mean, that's it." If you want to move on now and leave the earth plane, you're absolutely welcome. You know, whatever you want to do. What do you want to do? And Yeshua just loved the people of the earth so much. He wanted to help people get out of the mire of subjugation of mind that we're all under here on this earth plane. And he said, no, I want to go back. I want to go back and I want to be a person that can bring this knowledge and help people. And so Creator allowed him to come back here, and um, that's when he uh, uh, he said, okay, I have honed my mind. 
I've honed my spirit, but I haven't honed my body. So he went and found a, a martial temple um, high in the mountains of uh, Tibet, what is now Tibet, and he learned yoga and martial arts and all of the ways that you uh, defend yourself and keep yourself from hot heat and cold and all of that stuff. He learned all of those things and tempered his body. Uh, but as uh, we all know, there is no road on this earth plane that isn't fraught with difficulty. And Yeshua certainly had as much difficulty as anybody. And after he came out of that temple and began to became an adept and began to wander through the world helping people, he became disillusioned by the you know, murders and rapes and betrayals and all of the things that he saw going on here. And um, it completely brought him down and out. And uh, he he fell over. He fell down. He was robbed one day, hit in the head. He was laying in the mud. And he said if someone hadn't come around to help him, he would have just laid there and died. He was so disillusioned. Um, but uh, what happened was another adept came and picked him up and uh, fortunately or unfortunately gave him an opium pipe, which helped him get up out of the mud and feel better about at least continuing, but he became addicted to the substance. Now, one of the things that happened when he became addicted to that substance. I mean, there's a lot of things in the book, and there's you know one very awful thing that happened to him during that time. But once he eventually came back to uh, his homeland, uh, that, and that was uh, at the behest of his brother because his father was dying, Joseph was dying. When he came uh, back, he finally got over his addiction to that, and... One of the things one of his mentors said was to him was, that was not a mistake. You fell down into the darkest part of your being that you could possibly fall into, so that now and forever you will never wonder what it would be like if you couldn't be in the light, because you will know what that darkness is like, and you will stay in the light. And that was that was what happened to him. Of course, when he came out of that addiction, he was his full self. He was enlightened. People could see the light of his body uh, when he when he walked around. They could see the light. He was that was when his what you would call his ministry began. You know, when I was uh, again. The way I was approaching Jesus is I was looking at his sayings. And from his sayings, I went, okay, what kind of experiences would this person need to have for him to be able to say the things that he said and do the mm-hmm. things that he did? And so he had an open mind. I, I, I realized right off the bat he had an open mind. He had an open heart. He knew how to master the body. He was not. He did not embrace fear. So he was fearless, and he knew how to um, he knew how to uh, perform miracles. And I thought, what would you need to do to be able to have all five of those things in your life? 
And I figured that he had to have had some very profound experiences. And one of uh, several of them, I mean, I mean, what you just said about him having to kind of go into the depths of hell, I realized that he had to do something like that, you know, just kind of just really get down deep into that and get disillusioned, which is why I kind of think what the Christians kind of t- adopt this idea of I was lost and you were found. Um, that mm-hmm. seemed to be a resident theme. In, in the New Testament is that there was something about the man has fallen, man has gone, man has, has lost kind of a sense of where they are uh, and who he is. And Jesus, I felt like he had to experience that as well. The other one that I, I realized is that he, this, the profound experience that he had to have on a mystical side was he had to experience something on the other, you know, something on the other side. And so I felt that maybe the closest thing that he probably could have had uh, and I try to analyze this. And how do you fit all these different pieces to this experience that he would have? And that experience, I said, it's not enlightenment because that's just about the mind. There's something about the heart and there's something about fearlessness. Mm. And I thought maybe that had to do with a near-death experience. And then if okay. you have a near-death experience, what? why would he come back knowing something about the, what he referred to as the father? And I said, so in that near-death experience, he had to have experienced the father. And so that was how I arrived at my conclusion. And here he's telling you, so I'm not saying that mine is right, but, you know, based off of what you're saying, I got things very, very close. Absolutely, David. What you yeah, did as yeah. well. it, it's the thing that, that, that astounded me the most. When you and I were first on a radio program, we were both being interviewed at the same time. And we were both talking about this being Yeshua and everything from your book, which I have since read and and you've read my book. Um, We were saying the same things about this person, come from two different directions, but it was clear to me that you have a strong handle on this man, uh, who he is. And I got to say who he is because he's still here. He's still around. There's no was to it with Yeshua. He's still here. Maybe you would like to share some of what that, what you mean by that. Well, uh, what do I mean by that? He's still living. According to Yeshua, he still considers himself to be in the same lifetime. He's not died. When he went from his uh, near lifeless body in the sepulcher, to uh, the uh, light body, for lack of a better term, that he has now, uh, that shift, there, that was not a death experience. So he hasn't gone through the afterlife, and he's not sitting there with you know all of the other people who have moved through death. He's in a different place. He is still here with us. He's over 2,000 years old, and he's absolutely active. He says at any particular time, there's a a half to one billion um, instances, for lack of a better term, of himself here on the planet doing work at the same time. And um, that's something that he has learned how to do over the years there's many things he's learned to do over these 2000 years that he didn't have the ability to do when he was in an absolute physical body but he's not gone through death he's still alive he's still here 
it's uh, it's one of the things that astounds me and and excites me so much because he can do all of the things that we can do and so much, much, much more. He's not constrained by being in some uh, different dimension that, that has difficulty interacting with us. He's right here. And you, you, you hear stories over the years of people who have seen Jesus. Well, yeah, you have. And... Uh, he he comes to people, and there have been many times in my lifetime where I've I've not only seen him, but seen him look like he was in the flesh, um, walking or yeah. talking. And um, those experiences are golden for me, and probably uh, mundane for him. <laughs> but he's here, and he is available to have a relationship with absolutely anyone. He doesn't care if you have a religion. If you do have a religion, what that religion is does not matter to him one bit. You're human, and if you're human, he's here for you. If you want the aid of his presence, that presence of love, he said if you accept him into your heart, he will show you what it means to be loved beyond measure. You know, I, I would like to just say that um, when I was 21, I had uh, three very profound experiences of Jesus, and one of them lasted for eight minutes. So um, like you, um, I was walking home from the beach uh, like at 11 o'clock one night, and um, I, he was there across the street, and he came ah. over to me. Actually, I, I, I was walking up the hill, and I crested to the top of the hill, and I saw him across the street and down the way a little bit, and he stared at me, and I stared at him, and he turned around, and he started to walk away, and I said, hey, don't leave me. Come back. And with that, he turned around, and he came over to me, and he hugged me. And then with that, we walked together um, several blocks. And yeah. the whole experience lasted about, I, I timed it um, not long ago, a couple of years ago, I timed it. And it was about seven or eight minutes. Yeah, so we were walking silently for eight minutes. How beautiful. So what I a joy. Yeah, so I know what it means, you know, when he appears. And it was a very profound experience for me. In fact, it like kind of in a sense, it really turned my life around. And uh -huh. I found myself, you know, digging deep into Christianity. And I think, you know, had it not been for that that experience plus two other ones, uh, I probably would never have written a book or been interested in Christianity, but it was because of those experiences that I really kind of delved into um, the, the the Christian religion, and I went to church. I would like to, you know, ask you, uh, have you gone to church? Was that part of your upbringing, or is it just something that you never really had to do? Well, um, I, I grew up in a very... Um, Traditional Italian family. Um, I'm not 100% Italian, um, but my grandparents were. And uh, the the house that I grew up in, you know, there was uh, a la familia, you know. It was just my grandmother spoke uh, Italian when she didn't want the children to know what she was saying, et cetera, et cetera. 
it, it was a it was a beautiful family uh, to grow up in in that respect. And my father had walked away from the Catholic Church because of of, of a, an argument that he had with the local diocese. And my but my grandmother did not. She was very very Catholic, and my father refused to uh, let me be. Uh, to go into all of the stuff that children do in the Catholic Church, communion and confirmation and all that stuff. And I didn't go to Catholic school, uh, but she would take me to the Catholic Church just to give me that sense of the spiritual, if you will. She taught me how to meditate, which in the old world Catholics, uh, that's what prayer was. It was meditation. It wasn't a beseeching of of God. It was a meditation. She taught me how to meditate. And I went often with her because I lived in San Luis Obispo, California, which is where one of the original Father Junipero Serra missions are. And that was mm-hmm. the church of my family, that mission. And it was a beautiful, wonderful place to feel the spirit of God around you. And so I had that experience, and my sister had become Lutheran, and she made me go to Sunday school when I came and visited her in uh, in um, in the summer. Uh, but other than that, I never had a religion. I'm not of a religion now. When Yeshua came to me, it wasn't because... I besieged him or believed him to be there for me. He just walked into my life. And I am so very blessed and grateful for it. I knew who he was after a few visits. I was about five when I first met him. Four or five. I was in the new house, so it was five. I was around five. And um, he... After a few, he he told me his name was Yeshua, and I didn't I didn't understand the word Yeshua. It wasn't part of my little five year old language. I called him Joshua. But then after uh, a year or so, I said, "Are you Jesus?" And he said, "Yes, that's what a lot of people call me." And I said, "Oh my God, you're Jesus." He says, "Yeah, but you know, I'm just your friend. Don't worry about it." And that was that was that. He was my Joshua for years, for the rest of my wow. life. Yeah. And he's been with you ever yeah. since. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, there were a couple of years where I, I uh, ignored him. You know, where we get to be weird sometimes in our twenties and thirties. We, we, you know, we're trying to figure out the world, and we can get kind of egotistical. So there were a few times when I. Uh, I let him go, but not for long, because his his presence is just too wonderful. Well, a, a little bit like you, uh, when he came to me, you know, that was just, it, it was, I, I was in a position where I was uh, concerned about a lot of things, and I was confused, and there was a lot of uncertainty. And, yeah. I, you know, you're a young man trying to find your way in the world, and I just was just, not able to do it. <laughs> so um, this really kind of grounded me and it gave me a sense of direction and it gave me a sense of purpose. And I just, in a little bit like Jesus, I got really excited about learning 
and just reading yeah. and just absorbing everything. And I ended up going to church. I ended up learning about the Christian mystics and just finding this material just so rich and exciting. And then like you, I, I, it just started to kind of peter out and kind of wither away and it wasn't very strong and powerful anymore, but there was always something there. And I ended up looking into other facets of Christianity. Like I looked into the Gnostics and then I started to under, try to understand um, the historical development of Christianity. And from there I started mm-hmm. to really underst- try to understand the other religions in the world and get a bigger understanding of, you know, this whole thing people call religion, you know, and religion is actually a quite beautiful word there are two words uh, about it. There's lig, which is our word for ligament, which means attachment, and re is to redo. So it's like reattaching ourselves to uh, the divine. So yeah. I just find that that's very fascinating. And human beings are, you know, we, we have a, a sense that there's something beyond death and there's something beyond this life and there's like a veil between our reality and what we experience and the other reality. And we just, you know, some of us are wondering what that is and how we get beyond that. So do we have to die before we experience that or is something else happening? And here we're, you're talking about how other things can come to you. And, of course, now in the book that you write, you know, Jesus had, you know, he, he had a direct experience of the creator, as you said. Yes, yes. He, he asked several, in fact, over the years. Yeah. Um, he had a very, very tight relationship with creator. Um, which is what he calls God. He calls God Creator, and he, he says Creator is is not uh, human. Creator doesn't have a human form. So we anthropomorphize the Creator if we have an interaction with Creator, so that we can use our normal uh, means of communication with Creator. Because otherwise, you know, creator doesn't have the kind of form that we can communicate with. Um, so yeah. we anthropomorphize a creator in one way or another. And the way that he anthropomorphized a creator was as a woman who looked like his mother. <laughs> I thought that was Whoa. adorable. <laughs> That's just amazing. So instead of using the, the father, I mean, I kind of think of him as personifying the, you know, God as father. And you're saying that he kind of flipped the table on that and looked at it as mother. Is there a reason why he he chose father then? uh, Creator actually chose uh, his mother's to make him feel comfortable because he was so comfortable with his mother. He loved his mother so much. When Creator said, does this form help you better? And he says, yes, this is a very familiar form. So this is the, that's the form that Creator was for him uh, the rest of his life. Looked, he looked like his mother. And, you know, Yeshua is very clear about Creator. Creator's not human. Creator doesn't have a human form. It's not male or female. You try and say he, she... You know, you're you're you got half the story in either case. Yeah. Creators <laughs> the full the full spectrum. <laughs> right. You know, and that's that's the unfortunate thing about, you know, personalizing in that way. As you said, you get half the picture. Yeah, yeah. And I think so, that uh, in the in the Bible, it you know the the he the man, the male persona was the one that got adopted 
because it fit right in with the patriarchal church at the time. Right. I mean, there's a whole level of development of what happens when Christianity or when the Christians end up moving into the Roman Empire and what they had to do. So, you know, there's a different, there's definitely something different about the, like the Jerusalem church and Jesus' brother James versus what Paul was doing. Uh, And maybe we can talk about that. But before we do that, um, I would like to ask you, you know, with all of these types of experiences that you had at five and then with your grandparents, and then you decided that you, you probably didn't have, you didn't feel like you needed to go to church or it just wasn't necessary. Or was it, you know, it's just like, or were you trying to be happy or make your grandmother happy at all? Uh, no, I mean, I liked visiting the church and meditating with her. I liked that very much. And I always have a, I have a, 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 a weak, not a weakness, but a, you know, a place in my heart for the institutions, the, the buildings where people come to, to worship because that energy hangs around and the feeling in these old churches is just absolutely beautiful. And I, and I love that. But I, I here's what happened one Sunday when I was in Sunday school. I think I was eight and I'm sitting there in Sunday school, and I'm not in a religion, and I don't know any of these teachings, and I've never read the Bible, and I'm sitting there, and the the teacher of the Sunday school started saying, you are the reason that Jesus died. You are the reason that he he is dead. He is dead only because of the things that you have done that he has taken away from you. I mean, it was just like, I couldn't believe what this person was saying. It was just, and I stood up in the back of the classroom and I said, I'm no murderer and you're not going to pin that on me. And, uh, well, I wasn't welcome back to Sunday school anymore. I didn't have, (laughs) I I didn't have the sensibilities that would (laughs) make me amenable to religion. I'll put it that way. (laughs) That's just so funny. It's just like you know the truth, and that's not yeah. it. And so you're, yeah, not you're standing yeah. up and speaking up for it. You know, I had a very <laughs> similar experience. I, okay, I didn't have like what you had, but I was going to an Episcopal church. I, our our parents were Episcopalians, and there was David. Eight years old. Yes. There you are. Okay, can go you ahead. Hear me? Yeah. I can hear you now. Oh, and I said. Okay, uh, so, you know, our my parents were Episcopalians, and um, so there was an Episcopalian church in our uh, neighborhood. And so I'd go there, and I would I would put my hand on the rocks or the stones, you know, that made the, the church. And I was just going, God, these stones are, like, dead. And I feel like this whole religion is dead. What's up with this, you know? Uh, so yeah. I that's how I felt at a very early age that there was, like, there wasn't anything that was of life in there. And so it wasn't until I had the experience of Jesus that there was something new that was infused into my spirit that kind of started to soar and come alive. And you obviously had, a, you know, you, you said, hey, wait a minute, that's not, you know, for me. And I had the same kind of a thing. So something else happened. Yes. 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 Um, yeah, it's just, it's very fascinating to hear your story and to hear mine, like, compare notes. I, I like doing that. So, I know, me too. Me, um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of fun, you know, that you just, you have like, this, there's this 
kind of a tribe out there, and you're going, hey, you know, I'm not seeing it the same way theologically, but I'm sure experiencing something very different that I just feel just as alive with. Yeah. Um, do you, you know, kind of switching a little bit of the subject here, but did you do you feel that Jesus was like destined to do his ministry? And actually, why would he? Why do you think? And why? What was his rationale for conducting his ministry in uh, essentially in his hometown? In, in that area, yeah. as opposed to somewhere yeah. else. So was he destined, um, and do you feel like why he did it there? Well, yeah, that two two things, right? Let's take them one at a time. Um, yeah. Was he destined? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, the the yeah, he his his uh, <clears throat> his family were Essene. Jo- Joseph was Essene. And a a group of a splinter group, if you will, of the Essenes called the Nazarene. Now, this is again different from the Bible. That word is used in the Bible, but as far as I'm concerned, it's used in a corrupted manner. Uh, Yeshua says the Nazareans were a group of beings who came to the east. I'm sorry, came to the west, which would be Palestine area, Judah. Um, <clears throat> and from the east originally and brought the bone with them and melded into the Jewish Jewish uh, people at that time believing that they were the people who were going to bring the great teacher back see in the bone religion the great teacher came to this world about now about 37,000 years ago that was about 35,000 years ago when yeshua was was learning about it and the great teacher gave a whole lot of information to people which started the bone religion to begin with and actually a lot of his teachings were then codified into the vedic texts which became part of the hindu religion so it's all connected and uh so those people had been living in judah for a very long time waiting for the time of the great teacher to be reborn and they believed this to be the time and they believed the being that was going to be born of mary's womb was going to be the great teacher so he was raised from childhood to believe or to at least have the understanding that that uh being a teacher was his life's journey and being a great teacher <laughs> being a very specific type of teacher a prophet and so that's how he uh lived his life although he says in his early life he threw that away he said nah man oh, come on that's fanciful thinking i'm just this guy who just got to learn everything got to learn everything but it came back to him later on when he starts yeah. having these ascension events and all of that and he realizes yes this really is who i am and the reason he came back to his homeland he wasn't necessarily going to leave the east when he did but he got this letter from james saying you know, Joseph is near death. You need to come back and become the head of the family. It's your position. It's time for you to come home. And he said he had to, he had to honor James' request because that was the truth of it. He had to come home and take his place. And so he knew at that time that whatever his mission was going to be, whatever he was going to do, it had to take place in his homeland. He just that's something he just knew. 
Well, um, okay, so let me just ask and kind of go back just a little bit. But you mentioned the bone religion. And is that bone as in B-O-N-E, or how do you spell that? It's B-O-N, bone. Oh, and uh, bone. Yeah. And if you look up bone you... on the Internet, you're going to learn that the bone religion now um, is is a more modern religion, and it's become an official part of the Buddhist religion. It's a splinter sect of the Buddhist religion. But we're talking about the bone that's been around for, you know, 15, 16, 17,000 years the older, more um, animistic-type religion. So can you explain a little bit about it and, you know, what it what it is? I honestly don't know that much about it. Um, you should didn't feel as though it was important for me to really understand the old bone, um, only to know that it was a part of the teachings that were given to him when he was a child. Uh, So they're going to be more Eastern. They're going to be more Buddhist-like in in the way that uh, they uh, uh, talk to the world, but but they're also a little more mystical and a little more magical than the Jewish religion. So he believed that it was possible for the world to shift to your will and all that kind of stuff. You mentioned that it had an animistic kind of tendency to it. So um, when you kind of go into the Jewish religion, there's a very strong moral component to it. So, and the teachings on how, how you conduct your life and how you live your life and how you, you know, here are the rituals that you engage in and these are the types of food that you eat. You know, so it's yes. all very regulated in many regards. And then there's a very strong moral principle and there's a very ethical kind of side to them. But this would be something very different. You know, when you start getting into the deeper layers of, of kind of the uh, spirituality, and I wouldn't say just religion, but, you know, like spirituality, you know, there's a creative element that you can start participating with, with the, yes. universe, with the universe, and you can start listening to nature. You can start hearing voices. You can start seeing angels. You know, there's all of those kind of dynamics that uh, are available. So maybe the bond had something to do with that. And, you know, sometimes teachings aren't just always about, you know, morality. And I think that that's one of the right. things that Christianity has, um, they brought with them this a whole very, a very strong moral code with them. And the mystical side of things have been downplayed quite a bit. So it's kind of gotten watered down, unfortunately. At least that's how I see it. I, I do. I do, too. I think you hit on something very important there, uh, David. It's that... Uh, Well, backing up a little bit, one of the things I've learned about the Jewish uh, religion from Yeshua is that, yeah, there's a very strong code about how you are to act in the world, how you're to interact with other people, how you're to treat people, but it has no, uh, except for believing in God uh, at some level, they don't dictate what you believe, the Jewish religion doesn't dictate what you believe. You can believe in reincarnation, you can believe in angels, you can believe in heaven and hell, or you can believe in none of the above. They don't care. They, they, it's 
act, how you act in the world, how you be in civilization. That's what the Jewish religion really is about in its purest form. The thing about Christianity is that it's almost just the opposite. Whatever you do, we can find a way to forgive it, but you better believe this. It's almost the opposite. Yeah. And 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 yeah. I find that, that to be very interesting. It's you know, in fact they said if you don't believe it if you don't believe exactly like this, you're gonna to go to hell. Which is a really right. weird uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's very strange that yeah. your belief has to be so pure and it has to be so convicted on this one issue, whether he died for your sins or not. And if you don't believe that and accept that as, you know, God's gift to mankind that he died for you then Right. Yeah. Oh, David, are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Uh, I guess I are we kind of breaking up here? Yeah, you broke up a little bit. The last thing I heard was, if if you don't believe that he died for you. Yes, if you if if you don't believe that he died for you, then you have a one way ticket to hell. I, I right. just find that that's uh, very short sighted and very limiting. I I agree. I agree. Now, when we start talking about the the animistic and more pagan ideas that Bone may have brought into Yeshua's life at at a very early age, it also set him up for falling in love with the person he married, uh, Miriam, who is Mary Magdalene in our vernacular now, his wife Miriam. She was Egyptian. Uh, and then this goes against a lot of what uh, people out there talking about Mary Magdalene now are going to say. So sorry, people, but this is what Yeshua has told me. Mary Magdalene was Egyptian by birth, and she was a high pagan priest in an Egyptian temple there on the Sea of Galilee. And he met her in that in that uh, respect, in that uh, you know, that's who she was when he met her. And it took him a couple of years to convince her to leave her priestess position and marry him. Um, they fell in love, but she didn't want to give up her, her place of power in her religion to marry him. She didn't feel like it was important, but he was a rabbi. Rabbis had to get married to someone, and he wanted to marry her, so he kept pressing, and eventually she she gave in and, and married him. Wow, this is a very uh, interesting point because, um, again, one of the things that I noticed when I was reading the New Testament Gospels, again, it was like what's there and what's not there. And the other thing that I started to notice is that in in Christianity and in the, um, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're going to start seeing a lot of um, dismissing or um, trashing people who – People, uh, if the tribe that you're in doesn't like this other person, then they're going to minimize you or they're going to just be very vicious and nasty and they're going to call you all kinds of horrible names. And I look at what happened to Mary Magdalene, and there's one, she is, she's kind of been marginalized, and two, she's been kind of dismissed, and three, she was referred to as a prostitute. And I thought, boy, this seems very consistent with the way people were presenting other people and who they were in relationship to the, to the group that they were in, like the Essenes or, you know, the Christians. And so I yeah. felt like there was something more about Mary um, because she was so denigrated. 
uh, at that point. So oh, they had to get to rid me, of her. Something yeah. That, yeah. So and Sorry. I think they had they had to get rid of her. It, well, again, I, I think they had to get rid of her um, for a variety of reasons, and one of them is is I think um, that she just had the same intellect as Jesus, and mm-hmm. the fisherman mentality is not one of great depth. It might be one of great passion, but there's a certain depth to Jesus's understanding about the divine. And I could only assume that Mary had the same type of personality, a very strong personality with a very strong mind and with a great deal of insight and wisdom. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and personal power. She was a very powerful person. She, you know, she commanded a room if she wanted to, and she was a teacher in her own right. And uh, she taught right alongside Yeshua. Once, uh, she, once they got married and she came back to the family compound, she taught classes to the women, whereas, and Yeshua taught classes mostly to the men. And again, that was a Jewish thing, right? Women and men were a little bit separated. So um, yeah. they taught, but they taught. What was that? I said it wasn't just a little bit. Yeah, you're right. It wasn't just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um, they both taught classes, as James taught classes, too. They were the, the, the top teachers. The three of them were the top uh, the top of the heap, if you will, in what became what some people are calling now the, the uh, you know, the Church of Jesus and James. And when, wow. you know... You brought that up a little earlier that James was, uh, you know, a uh, powerful, powerful person. Yeah. And he was yeah. also considered the father of the Jerusalem church. Yes, he was, right. Which, in James' terms, was the continuation of his brother's teachings. And he tried very, very diligently. Um, James tried to bring the teachings of Yeshua back into the Jewish religion, and the fathers at that time weren't weren't going to have it, weren't going to let it happen. So um, didn't didn't make it. But then, of course, Paul came along, and John went off on his due diligence, and I mean on his ministry. Andrew went off on his ministry. All these beings and others that aren't mentioned in the book at all. Many many beings from from uh, the the schools that had become enmeshed in the teachings, uh, really, really got into them with James and then went off to other parts of the world to teach, as we know about a few of them, but there were lots of them. There wasn't just 12. Uh, Yeshua was, was teaching a couple hundred people, and many of them went off on ministries all around the world. Well, I think I don't know where it was or whether it was Luke. I think it was Luke where Jesus had like essentially seventy disciples. So somewhere along the line, you know, there was this paring down of just the twelve. But you know, the the, the New Testament Gospels mentioned that Jesus had seventy. So I would imagine that there's a uh, a layer of intimacy that he had with almost everybody. So it wasn't just I'm your teacher and then go out in the world. I think that there was also a very hands-on approach that Jesus had in mentorship with a lot of people. So it, it wouldn't surprise uh-huh. me that it was more than 12. Yeah, I, 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 I believe that you're right in that. 
although he does make it very, very clear that his two, the two disciples, if you will, he called them devotees, that um, that touched his heart the most, that became like personal friends, were Judas and Peter. So why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about what was uh, Judas like and what was Peter like and why he uh, why they became personal friends. Uh, I would like, before I do that, there was one question when I was looking at the book, I was thinking, does Jesus have any friends before he started his ministry? And because it seems like maybe he developed friendships while he was ministering, but did he have any like friends before he started to minister? And then I started to ask, well, if he did, would that have, how would that have affected his ministry? So maybe he wanted to separate any of the past experiences that he had with with, uh, men and women that he might have grown up with. What's your take? Uh, Interesting, interesting question. Uh, Of course, he had friends throughout his lifetime, and he left many friends behind in, in all of the different areas that he lived and left. Um, but in his homeland, you know, this is, again, something completely against the mythology that's grown up around Jesus. And it's not everything that people believe about Jesus has come directly from the Bible. You you know that, David. Some of it is just, you know, it's, it's what's been handed down about him. And uh, Jesus was not a pauper. His family was not, were not paupers. His father, it said he was a carpenter, but really he was a contractor. And he he uh, managed crews of men who put up buildings. And uh, uh, it's what we would consider a modern-day contractor did. That's what Joseph did. And when, when there were a, a number of beings in this uh, group, the Essene, the Nazareans in the Essene, who wanted to support Jesus' birth and uh, growing up uh, so that he could have the the best beginning to this life of the great teacher returning. And they gave, when they, when they put Mary and Joseph together, they gave them a large area of land on a hill outside of Mount Tabor, about five miles from Sepphoris. The, the city that grew up as Sepphoris, um, Herod's, you know, glittering jewel uh, of commerce in uh, Upper Galilee. Right. Yeah, so right. uh, they had they had land, and there were lots and lots of like-minded Nazarene people who were friends of Jesus, who uh, gave him love, and he loved them, and they had family gatherings and parties, and it was a rich, rich community. But there were none within the community save his brother James, who really came along as someone very important to him prior to uh, the, you know, the influx of the devotees and coming in of Peter and Judas and, and all of the others. Um, there were people he loved dearly, but they weren't part of his ministry. They were part of his family, basically. When I was able, you know, when I put I put all of Jesus' sayings and then I cat, um, categorized them based off of subject, 
And so, the, like, the number one subject that Jesus talked about was money. And then when I broke that down into subcategories, I noticed that there was the merchant mentality. There was an entrepreneurial um, mentality. There was uh, the mentality of of person who owned, like, a, you know, land and sold um, crops from, you know, not necessarily farmers, but, you know, maybe they were ranchers, but they had some type of agricultural product that they were selling. And then I noticed, you know, the, the nature of inheritance and then working with your hands. And so uh-huh. all of these things came together to me, and it made me ask the question, how would he know about this unless he was already involved with it? Yeah. So that's how I yes. came to that's how I came to the conclusion that Jesus came from, you know, a very a fairly wealthy family. Of course, in Luke it says that um the women there were certain w- women that traveled with him and they were referred to as women of means, which means that they were wealthy women. And um Jesus's mother Mary was considered one of those women, as was uh Mary Magdalene. So, do uh-huh. you think that she came from money? Mary Magdalene, she, she uh, Miriam had money in her own right. In fact, she was wealthier than Yeshua, than Jesus. She had uh, amassed quite a lot of resources by the time she met Jesus, Yeah, which would have been normal for the head priestess of a uh, uh, temple, Egyptian temple at that time. Uh, this was her proper place. So... Um, she had uh, houses. She had a house in Magdala. She had a house in Tiberias, and she had a house in uh, Caesarea. Uh, wow! That was land that she owned, and she had a lot of monetary resources and fields, and you know, people that worked under her, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So when she came to marry Yeshua, she she didn't necessarily bring all of that with her. She sort of left it as community property between her and Yeshua, and they did use those resources from time to time, but she didn't really feel um, that they were important in that respect. So what was important for her was melding into the family, melding into the compound, becoming a... Uh, a rich resource herself rather than the things in her life. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the nature of the ministry, the ministry had to have some source of money to be able to conduct yeah. it. You know, so I think oh, yeah. there were people there that were donating to, you know, Jesus would do things and they would, the gift, they would give him money or they'd give him food or they would do something. But you would still, it would still require uh, an element of money to be able to do what Jesus did. Oh, they had they had so plenty. I, yeah. So, um, tell me that if she's the you know the temple priestess, and then she decided that it was time to you know do the ministry with Jesus and and be by his side, she had to make a huge sacrifice. And I she think did. Jesus did too. You know, anybody that, anybody that goes out on a type of mission like that is making huge sacrifices. Absolutely, yeah, both of them. Um, actually, the, I think that Miriam sacrificed more than Yeshua did um, because, you know, he still was an owner of, of property and he had his brothers, his brother Jude was taking care of the family business. He was a contractor. He took it over from his father. 
who had taught him how to do it. Uh, his brother James was like his um, manager, if you will, and um, they were together all the time. Miriam, um, oh gosh. Could you ask me your question again? I got a little lost in thought there. I was just thinking, you know, the nature of the sacrifice to be able to conduct a ministry and then the sacrifice one would have to, you know, marry Jesus. Now, if she was a priestess, then we're looking at sacrifices being made. My life is about to change in a way. You know, everybody makes sacrifices, but, you know, all of a sudden you're really giving up a lot for this. That, she did. She did. There's yes. More, there's more skin in the game. There's a lot more skin in the game. Yes. She what she had to give up was her entire position within the temple. She had to step down as head priestess and walk away from the the, the position that she had trained for her entire life. As she said in in one of the things that she wrote to me is she She'd never wanted uh, the jewel of marriage in any crown that she wore. It wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to be the high priestess, but when she fell in love with Yeshua, and that was just overwhelmingly a draw for her as it was for him, they knew their future was together. They knew they were coming at this work together. And the 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 uh the goddess who uh Miriam talked to, uh even more more than Yeshua talked to Creator, she talked to Goddess and Goddess told her that while she was with Yeshua that she would be helping Yeshua set the platform for his work. And when Yeshua left um, she would be starting her seminal work in the world, which, of course, she did. She was in danger, um, quite a lot of danger after the crucifixion. And she ended up um, absconding with some of the children and went to uh, Europe. To uh, And then that's where she started her seminal teaching. She, she began the Order of the Rose, which years and years later transformed from Miriam's uh, group into what became the Rosicrucians. A lot of the Rosicrucian um, beliefs came from Miriam directly. She's the one that started that organization, but it, it changed a lot when it became a more patriarchal organization, as you can imagine. But she, um, she, so she gave up everything that she believed she had come to this life for to take on a brand new mission, a brand new undertaking. Now, Yeshua, what what he let go of was the the um, uh, what can I say? When he married Miriam, the, the as he says in the book, my marriage was not written in the annals of my creed. It could not be. She was a pagan, and it meant that any children they had together would not be Jewish because she was not Jewish. And um, so what he gave up was a very intimate relationship with his religion of birth. And and part of the teachings that he was ministering 
and he was teaching and he was, you know, conducting and was in many respects, at least from my perspective, was something very new. So he was taking, I don't even know, I I don't, you know, people think the the way that I was kind of taught, you know, when I was going to church is that Christianity was just a continuum of the Old Testament. And the more I started investigating Jesus, the more I started realizing that there is a separation here. It's not a a continuity. It is a, it's a break. It's something very new and very different. Yes, definitely very different. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's just kind of go. I I would like to mention this. You know, um, there's a personal journey that Jesus went on. And like with all teachers and all all men of wisdom, all women of wisdom, one goes through hard knocks and just more hard knocks. And just, you know, sometimes you just get wiped out. And what's remarkable that I found in Jesus is the resiliency to say, even though I found, you know, kind of the – I went through kind of hell and back, and I understand just the depth of human depravity. I'm still recognizing who they are and that I am being motivated by love. And that is such an enormous realization to come to, you know, as opposed to just being defeated by the whole situation and just saying, I give up, you know, mankind's horrible, and I, I want to leave. You know, and yes. I and you just get yes. bitter and angry and disappointed, and then that becomes your life. And for yes. Jesus, there seems to have been something else that that took place for him to say, "No, that isn't it. I need to do something more." And that's a remarkable thing. So, you know, when people just when real authentic teachers come around, you kind of sense it and know it because they've been through hell and back in a sense. Yes, absolutely. And anyone that thinks that Yeshua could be who he was, teach what he taught, and love us the way he loves us in our core for who we are, no matter what we say or do, believes that that's just a, coming from a, a la-la-la life. That That's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> not possible. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's not this flower. He's not this flower power child. No, no. There's a there's no. a there's an aggressiveness to this. He's referred to as the Lion of Judah. So there is there's something to that term there. That's you know, very so interesting. Yes. Yeah. So you know, yeah. Well, remember, he says you have to be gentle as dove and uh, and wise as a snake. And you know, when I. I came across when I was reading that and I was really thinking about it. I was really deeply contemplating, you know, how do you become really wise like a snake and how do you become gentle as a dove? I mean, these two are, these are very antithetical ideas and yet he seems Uh to be embodying both. Well, how do you do that? You know, so what, what would you have to do to, to become both gentle and really, really insightful? Well, you have to have a, you have to, have a lot of bad things happen to you to become very insightful. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you can't, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus wasn't just book smart. That's the difference. Right. There's a lot of people right. out there that are, you know, well, I read a book and I know what now I, I have, you know, I've read 10 books and so I really know something. Yeah, Jesus did the same thing, but that wasn't it. There was a whole nother layer to who he was and his personality. And it has a Absolutely. lot to do with experiences. 
both profound, profound in the bad sense and profound in just like the bliss sense. Absolutely. Uh, I, I agree with you 100%. And one of the things that people don't realize is that there were people after Yeshua since he was a child. They wanted him dead. This great teacher, uh-uh, ain't going to come into my lifetime. You know, we, we don't want him around. There were many, many powerful beings as far away as the East and and as far north as uh, Europe. There were whole whole groups of people who wanted him dead. And we, we go over a couple of those instances where uh, murderers, assassins came after him. Uh, one was when he and uh, Joseph went to Egypt when Yeshua was eight or nine, and uh, someone poisoned him. They they wanted him dead, and uh, he came through that. Uh, and, and my understanding is that there were several times in his lifetime where assassins had to be thwarted uh, because they were coming after him. When he was in the east, he had some assassins follow him from uh, the Red Sea all the way to Kapila Vashtu, and uh, almost had their way with him twice on that on that journey. So even though he uh, fell down into those dark, dark places that, that we talked about earlier and had those experiences, he already was wise enough about the world to realize that there could be dangers around every corner. No matter how much love, no matter how much wonderful things might be in one respect, people can be quite evil. Yes. Is it, yeah. Was there something that he was saying, you know, like there's all these people coming out from the woodwork, so to speak, from the east and from the north, and they were attempting to assassinate Jesus. How would they know that the great teacher is coming into the world? Oh, a lot of people knew it. It, it was It was known... <laughs> Uh, across many lands, um, the the people uh, in the east at Kapilavashtu, there were whole groups of people in the east that were waiting for him to come and had been watching, knew that he was going to come into the Middle East. There were groups in uh, northern, northern Europe that were waiting for it. There were groups in Africa uh, that were waiting for it, um, and they were all watching and so when in the Bible they talk about the wise men who came from the star, that's actually, as far as I'm concerned, a a metaphor, not an actual reality of three men who who walked into the manger. There was no manger, by the way, but the it was the a metaphor for all the people who were watching and waiting for this person to be born. Some because they wanted to help him do what he was come to do, and some because they wanted to hinder. Yeah, in the in the New Testament, you have the the three wise men, and so they're the ones to that came to help, you know, and provide the wealth that was necessary for Jesus to do the work. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful story. So obviously, it's there was something yeah. in the sky. And, yeah, there's something yeah. in the sky that seemed to trigger. You know the, the events to that that unfolded. So, let me just ask you: What is it that you think Jesus was attempting to accomplish, and what was his teachings? And why would why would all these other groups of people from all over the world say we need this guy dead? 
We don't want that. Love- whatever he has to offer, we don't want. He he came to take the chains off of our lives, take the chains off our beings. There are let's talk about today because I think we can talk about it easier if we talk about it in terms of what's happening at present. There are entire mm-hmm. forces on this planet, um, some terrestrial, some extra dimensional, some non-terrestrial. There are all kinds of forces on this planet who don't want us to become awake. They don't want humanity to move away from the chains of subjugation that we're now in. As a subjugated race of people, humanity feeds resources to these other groups at an astounding rate. Resources that we don't get to use ourselves. And these resources are what they want to continue. But if we become awake and we stop being subjugated by these uh, fear thoughts, fear is the big deal. You know, fear is the opposite of love. And uh, divine love will get rid of fear. Fear will get rid of divine love. They are uh, equal forces. And so these other groups, they use fear to subjugate us, to keep us thinking and believing things that just aren't true about who we are, where we came from, what we're to do here, what is available to us. We can all awaken. We can all be enlightened. We can all ascend if we want to or allow ourselves to go through death if we want to. It's a much more malleable future that we can have if we wake up and that's what Yeshua wants to do. He wants to take the subjugation of fear off of our beings and allow us as a race to wake up. Well said. Yeah, because everything that Jesus did was he was brave and courageous and fearless. And that he yes. he was infused with this sense of mission and determination and he was just dogged about what it is that he wanted to do. And that had to have, have affected, you know, his his ministry and those around him. They had to have seen it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they did. Absolutely. You know, when you talk about seeing it, now now we're, we're going to bring in John the Baptist, right? Because there was the thing at the river, Right. Um, the let's, thing that happened at the Jordan River. What? Yeah, let's say? talk about John. I yeah. said, let's talk about John. Oh, okay. Now, Yeshua actually had two seminal moments with John the Baptist, and people don't know about the first one. But when Yeshua came back uh, to the uh, Judah and went to the family compound, and James and Jude were just on him like... Uh, they kicked him out, let's put it that way, because he was still addicted to opium when he got back to Judah the first time. He hadn't been able to get off, get away from that compound. And they judged him harshly, and they kicked him out. And when he was out wandering in, the, in Judah, he came upon John. And in an interaction that he had privately with John over a campfire, 
John inserted a seed in Yeshua that caused Yeshua to finally do what he needed to do to get off of his addiction and move forward um, with his with his true self. And then later on, when he was, uh, it was time for him to start wandering and doing his ministry. Then he went back and found uh, John at the at the river's edge. And uh, when John baptized Jesus, then everybody saw it. He was illuminated like a light bulb, and uh, just. Uh, Lots of energy and colors, he said, and, and, and all kinds of things flying around uh, around him at the time. People were quite astounded by what they saw that day. It was it was quite amazing. But it was the second. That was the second interaction with John. Yeah, when I was, uh, again, when I was looking at Jesus' life uh, based off of the gospel, I noticed that Jesus is one thing before he went to John, and then he's something else after he sees John. Mm-hmm. And there was John was the bridge between one type of life and another type of life. And yes. I tried to explore the concept of what what John had to bring to Jesus, and how he, Jesus might not have necessarily agreed with um, John's theology. But there was something about John that Jesus needed, and so I explored yeah. that in my book. And it was, be- and then from that, Jesus had to go through, I guess, the the, the forty days and forty night experience out in the desert, and that was a, like kind of the final purging of Jesus's kind of personality that prepped him for the um, his ministry. Is there anything that you got to experience, or was Jesus talking to you about what what happened to him while he was out in the desert for those forty no. days? No. Um, in hmm. fact, he he said that he many times he would run out into Decapolis and spend time in the desert. That that was something he did actually often when he felt overwhelmed and unable to find the germ of his true self. He would run off into the desert. So that was not the only time i mean he did that over and over and so yeah. whether that was an actual 40 days that he spent in the in the desert or not i can't say it's, it's more likely it's a metaphor for what actually happened um but it was something that he did often if he got started feeling lost um then he was off into the desert yeah i noticed that you know that he said on several occasions, it would say that he would go to quiet, I think it was quiet and lonely places. And I thought, well, what are you doing out there in quiet and lonely places? And this is, again, it's like he's having to rejuvenate in a sense. He's having to re- yes. refocus. Yes, that's exactly he's trying to clear what himself to get, He's trying to clear himself to get focused and understand, am I on the right path or you know how come the, I, I mean I I totally believe that there was a lot going on where Jesus was saying a lot of things and people were like when huh you know oh, they yeah. just weren't getting oh. what he was saying and so I kind of think that there was a level of frustration that he was experienced because you know he's like the the math teacher that's teaching you calculus but all you're ready for is you know basic arithmetic so 
You know, how do you take <laughs> Jesus to the level and then try to teach something when any, everybody is down at this other, other this kind of this base experience? I mean, it had to have been extraordinarily challenging for him and maddening and frustrating. Yeah. Yes. I, I imagine it. I imagine it was, and and that's something that that I noticed that people don't get as well. Yeshua was a passionate man. He was. He could experience any of the emotions that we experience. The difference yeah. between you and me and Yeshua is that he handled himself around those emotions usually very, very well and didn't allow the emotions to translate into actions of an, uh, of themselves. Well, and that was yeah. something that, so, we, you know, we, we have to work very hard to get to that place in our lives where we can overcome our yeah. emotions. Right. And, you know, there was a, it's interesting because when I was, again, I was just analyzing a lot of just, what his sayings were. And then I was trying to understand, you know, he would say things and then he would go place and then he would say things and then he would, you know, go to another place. So there seemed to be this kind of string of pearls that were wisdom, walking, wisdom, walking, wisdom, walking, you know, and (laughs) with that, I just, you know, to me it was very fascinating. So I'm just, again, I'm just trying to understand, you know, how all this stuff was, um, transpiring and what he was thinking, but there were moments when he, there were moments when I started to look at when at the beginning of the ministry, he seemed to be very focused on the teachings, uh, whether uh-huh. it would be, you know, the, the teachings that you would hear that would be associated with the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And then you'd have his parables. And it seems that as he progressed in the ministry for the, the several years, that those teachings, he wasn't doing that as often as he was engaging those people who were always against him. And he had a rhetorical style in which he would take somebody's attack and flip it, flip it around like a martial artist would in, in like judo. You just take it and move their energy and move it into some other direction. So a perfect yeah. example is, you know, uh, who, who here is, with, you know, without sin, you know, cast the first stone. Um, that was the type of re- rhetoric that he seems to have used. And so, he again, he's kind of uh, mastering his emotions yes. at that moment. And he's probably really angry with what's happening, but he's going to do it in a very constructive way to redirect the energy away from this very destructive act. Yes. Well, he was also yes. very straightforward. You know, I just love it when I, you know, I tell a friend of mine, like, well, he'll, he'll start complaining to me, and I go, hey, what did Jesus say? <laughs> <laughs> get, up and, get up and pick up your mat, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, David. One of the things I got to say to you is that you know, yes, you you came at this this uh, mission of understanding who Jesus was and what actually happened to him in his lifetime from this very analytical viewpoint and taking the stuff out of the Bible and making, uh, you know, really wonderful deductions from what you read and, and studied. But also, you know, Jesus was sitting on your shoulder. I mean, how many times did he maybe whisper in your ear? And, um, oh, well, and you listened, you know? 
there was a very interesting experience that I had, and I was writing the chapter on John the Baptist, and I I finished writing this whole section, and it was like I took the 40 days, and I just said, well, that was just like a metaphor for a long time. And, you know, maybe it was out there for a couple of times, you know, a couple of days or a week or whatnot, but 40 days, I don't think so. So I finished <laughs> that whole section, and I, and, I, and I said, okay, I'm done for the day because I was exhausted after writing it. So I was in the in the den, and I was just kind of sitting down, and I was, you know, having a little dinner, and there was a voice inside my head, and it says, you got that all wrong. You have to reconsider 40 days in the desert and there what you that go. meant. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, I think that there was, I think that there was this, you know, there. I, I feel like there were moments when I wrote and wrote and wrote, and the next day I would look at my work and they go, i got to do a little editing before I start off in the next section of what it is I want to write. And I would read it and go, uh, I wrote that yesterday, and I don't remember writing any of it. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> so, there was yep. interesting and very fascinating ideas that were coming through to me and experiences in writing that book, and I miss it, you know, because I haven't had that same kind of uh, determination and focus and just joy of waking up and knowing. And actually, I woke up every morning with this feeling inside my gut that was saying you have to write you you can't and I say I need a break no you can't you just got to write yeah so yeah. um it, you know we were talking a little bit about Jesus's personal friends and while he was ministering that there was Judas and Peter so I was wondering yeah. if maybe you had some insights about Judas and uh about Peter I, and did he did he know them sure. before he started his ministry or was it because he he did he conducted his ministry Oh, good questions. <clears throat> Let's take Peter first. So Peter was the head of a family. He had a lot of children. He had a wife, uh, grandchildren, the whole thing. And uh, Peter knew Joseph. They were both merchants in the same area of the world. They they knew each other. But Peter did not know Jesus. Uh, before the day at Capernaum, um apparently no 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 it was no that wasn't the day sorry judas was uh peter was already with uh yeshua at the family compound learning from him before the day in capernaum so peter and his son came had heard yeshua talk someplace and peter's like wow this is joseph's son oh man i got to get some more of this and he and his son you know, went off to uh, study at the family compound. And uh, Yeshua said to me that uh, Peter reminded him of Joseph. They were very similar type people, Um, men who were thoughtful, who uh, allowed their love to go in the world, who were also really good merchants and understood business. And so he said Peter often listened to him with a compassionate ear. Uh, They would go off for walks, and he would talk to Peter about what was going on with him. And Peter would often listen and, you know, have a wise word to say to him as as if he were off with Joseph. So he was good friends with Peter. He really loved him. And he he reminded him of Joseph, who he, of course, missed very much. So that was a relationship that he really cherished. And the other one was Judas. 
Now that is a very different relationship. He said, of all of the devotees, of all of the people that studied with him or listened to him or lived on the family compound, he, Judas was more like Jesus than any of them. They were both wow. highly intelligent. Yeah. So they were both highly intelligent, highly passionate, wanting to see the world differently, wanted to, uh, Judas wanted to embrace Yeshua's teachings deeply. And Yeshua had a heart connection with Judas that was very deep, very fast. And they became best friends. And Yeshua says that whenever Judas would leave the compound, because he would frequently, um, that he missed him terribly and couldn't wait for him to get back. He was a heart friend, a deep heart friend to Jesus. And um, maybe as close to Jesus or possibly as close to Jesus as James was. They were very, very, very good friends. And... um, So that begs the question, doesn't it? Why did Jesus betray him? Yeah. Why did Judas betray him? Well, he didn't. He didn't. He actually did exactly what Jesus asked him to do. And that's what people don't understand. Wow. He was cast as a betrayer, but at Yeshua asked him to give him over to the Romans. That's what Jesus wanted. And again, when we go back to our, earlier in our conversation when we were talking about, you know, why did he, why the crucifixion? Well, it's something he needed to do. It was his his uh, his plan. Right, which is what I said before, is that Jesus was interested in controlling his own destiny. Absolutely, yes. So Jesus, the reason... It, all... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and that's why he just did what he did, is that he he wanted to control as much as he could the outcome of what was going to happen to him. As Absolutely. opposed to it just being willy-nilly happening, right? Just, oh, my God, I don't know why that happened. <laughs> exactly got, correct. He got blindsided. Yeah. He wasn't, yeah. you know, so Jesus didn't want to be blindsided. Right. So instead of being blindsided, he orchestrated the entire Passover thing that happened brought his will to bear yes. uh, forced Pontius Pilate to offer him up to crucifixion uh, literally forced Pilate to do that Pilate was very angry um, when he realized that Yeshua was forcing him to do something he didn't want to do and um, he 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 made it happen he definitely made it happen and Judas of course you know, after the crucifixion, I mean, Yeshua said there was nobody but Judas who was strong enough to do what he asked him to do. Because Judas was a militant. Wow. He was a zealot. Yeah. And he was used yeah. to military operations. And so um, none of the other people in, in his entire life would have done for him what Judas did for him. There's a great sacrifice for Judas, man. Yes. You know, I, I've was. been thinking about Judas quite a bit. I've been thinking of Judas a, a lot and trying to understand his personality is trying to, and, and really kind of dig into his motive as to why he would turn on Jesus. And um, I hadn't thought about Jesus asking him to do it. I mean, it seems as though, you know, the way the New Testament is written is that Jesus was uh, 
alluding that Judas was going to betray him and that Judas was kind of like the traitor and that there was something about that that had a stigma to it. And okay. so I kind of imagined that maybe Judas was upset that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, I could imagine that Judas was looking at Jesus and Jesus saying, yeah, and there's someone that's going to be betray me and he's going to be a traitor. And it's like Judas is thinking, why are you looking at me like that? Yeah, why why are you throwing me under the bus now? <laughs> Actually, he had asked him the week. <laughs> but he he knew it. He asked him the week before. He took him aside when they were outside Jerusalem and and asked him, told him why and asked him if he would if he would do that for him and and Judas said, "I don't want to do this for you. I don't want to do this, but I can't say no. I love you too much to say no." Wow. Wow, that's just a lot of camaraderie there. Because he yeah. knew what the consequences were, and he knew what was going to happen if he did it. Yeah. And so, you know, there's that whole stigma of just he was a traitor, and um, now he has all of the his, like, reputation that was destroyed, you know, because everybody yeah. saw him in a different light. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's very definitely. Cool. Yeah. Judith, I mean, there's, Judith um, was there's a couple beautiful, beautiful being. Go ahead. Oh, man, that's very that's very different than that. You know, you know, he was constantly taking money from the the treasury, and he was kind of self centered and all that kind of stuff. So again, here's another person that was betrayed in a very different way than what you're saying. So yeah, definitely. Which kind of goes back to what I was saying about earlier is that there's a lot there's a smear campaign that's going on, and I noticed that uh, in certain with certain people within the 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 narrative the gospel narrative. Some are being elevated into very high positions, and they're they're doted upon in a sense. And then there were others that were either dismissed or minimized or marginalized. Absolutely. So absolutely. Yeah. Uh, James also being one of them. You know, how many times yeah, when I was, grew up he, did the Catholic Church doctrine say Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters? Mary was a virgin in all her life. Exactly, and that's how I. That's what I looked at. It's like if his family was more involved than they were, then how come they're left out of the story except his mother Mary, <laughs> who was elevated into the, you know, the uh, the mother of God. I mean, again, right. there's that whole elevation and dismissal kind of uh, arc that's going on here. Yes. So you know yes. what? We're kind of we're getting close to all, you know our two hours here, and I have a couple more things that I'd really like to talk to you about. So sure, maybe we let's can shift do a little bit. Let's just shift gears a little bit. Okay, so, you know, your book is called Journey of a Prophet. And when I, you know, here I am, I'm reading the Gospels over and over and over again. And the earliest of all the Gospels, Jesus would refer to himself as a prophet. And he would do it in a very, it's interesting, he would always do it in a roundabout way. Jesus would never say, I am, I'm this, I'm that. He seems always to say, well, who do you think I am? And he would say, no prophet is honored in his own in his hometown. So there's kind of a, a, a funny way where Jesus is not announcing to the world, Hey, everybody look at me. I'm this, you know, great person. I'm the teacher. I'm the, I'm the man here, you know, bow down and worship to me. He didn't have that. He had, I think a personality that was very bold and very aggressive and at the same time, very compassionate, but he wasn't one. He, I don't think he was so egotistical that he was always saying, Hey, look at me, everybody. Oh, no, no. So you refer from, to him. Right. 
Exactly. See, this is this is a very interesting point, and I kind of again I had to think through that. Like, why would Jesus constantly say when people would come up to him and say, "Hey, are you the Messiah?" And he goes, "Well, who would you think? Who do you think I am?" And he wasn't saying yes, and he wasn't saying no, uh-huh. but he was allowing the other person to really kind of think through what they want and what they need. Yeah. So I also think that that was a way, and I also think that that was his way of bringing people into the fold to say, hey, look, let me show you a few things, and then you can make up your mind. Uh, but you yeah. used the term prophet, and I used the term uh, that he, he, he called himself a prophet. So what do you think about this whole idea that he Jesus is referred to as the Son of God? I mean, is there is there some other way to look at that other than, say, the way the, the Christians understand it? What's your take on that? Well, and yeah, let's go into one more yeah. thing. And then let's uh-huh. just kind of re- and then let's just kind of dovetail that into Christ consciousness. What's that? What uh-huh. do you think that is? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's, uh, a, it's, a, it's a good thing right here at the end of the in, uh, at the end of the interview, but <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. It's great. Okay. So there was, uh, you know, there's the um, the trial that happens before the crucifixion, the Sanhedrin trial, right? And when when Yeshua and I wrote about that, and he told me about what happened during that trial, and actually there's a couple other times in the book where this happens too, but I'll point to that moment. They ask him who he is, and they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, I can't be the Messiah. You've already ruled that I'm not the Messiah. Are you telling me that what you ruled is wrong? And they said, "But but who are you? And he said, "Well, um, I am a son of son of man by learning, and uh, a rabbi by teaching." And so he called himself a son of man, not a son of God. And he makes a very yeah. big distinction there. We're all sons and daughters of God. There's nothing special about being of God. We are all divine creatures with a piece of God within us. You know, there's there's nothing, that's not a distinction, but a son of man is what he learned how to be. And that's he being of service to mankind, to humanity. That's his way of being of service to us, and he learned that. When he learned to become an uh, at the temple of man, he learned how to become a son of man, and so that's his mission, being a son of man. But he has never said to me ever that he's the son of God, except in the the you know way that we all are sons yeah. and daughters of God. The general sense, yeah, the general sense, we're all sons and daughters, right? Yes. We all have a piece of okay. the divine in us. Exactly, exactly. And we're all connected to that, you know. Unfortunately, Absolutely. there's a lot of other issues. that are, There's all these other blockages that <laughs> prevent us from really kind of understanding what that is. And, and most of it is all uh, emotional. And, of course, you know, my feeling is is that almost everything is emotion. Everything is emotion. If you're bored, that's emotional. If you're joyful, you that's emotional. If you're angry, that's emotional. If you're if you're happy, that's emotional. You know, you just being human is just pure emotion. You know, you are a vehicle for emotion. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the best you can do is manage your emotions. Manage your emotions exactly. Got to do that. And uh, 
he talk he talks about um what it just had something in my mind to say and uh it eluded me so you know let's keep let's keep going it'll probably come back well okay so then aside from the son of god you know and what you uh, thank you for mentioning that cuz he also mentions that he's the son of adam too so he liked to use yeah. those two terms uh yeah. son of man and son of adam uh, but now we also kind of go into, you know, the present day ideas and the new age ideas of, you know, the Christ consciousness. And when when people ask me about that, I, I, I cringe because I, I just think that that's my book was the subtitle is called The Man. So I was really trying to understand what happened to him and what uh-huh, he was attempting uh-huh. to accomplish. So yeah. the Christ consciousness wasn't necessarily about. Oh, David, you you went away again. New address. I'm really trying to understand him, but this this idea, the Christ consciousness, keeps coming up. Do you have any you know words of wisdom on on that? Well, I first uh, came across this Christ consciousness uh, idea way 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 back in in the 80s, late 70s, early 80s, when I was doing a lot of studying of different different religious texts and different ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it, it never really sat well in me because it seemed to be a very cerebral concept. And as far as I'm concerned, when you go into your spirit and you become, you wake up and you become, quote, unquote, enlightened, which one of my masters has always said to me, you wish to become enlightened? Simply lighten up. You know, so <laughs> I, I I agree with that. You know, that's what it means. Lighten up. <laughs> so it seemed to me that it was much too cerebral to be real. Because when I'm in my spirit and I'm in my spiritual self and I'm humming and life is not bothering me and I'm able to field my emotions without trouble and you know, things are humming along. It's not cerebral. It's heart. It's yes. heart. So Christ Very consciousness, good. I don't exactly understand what it is. I never have, and I don't subscribe to it. And how would you then, would you kind of think of that uh, also in terms of the sacred feminine? Uh, or do you have a different idea of you know, Mary Magdalene, oh, the sacred feminine principle. You know, I'm, I'm being I, asked about that as well. So what's your take on that? Mary Magdalene does talk about the sacred feminine because she talks about magic a lot. And I am writing Ooh. a book that's about her concepts, and she talks about magic and making magic. And female magic and male magic are very different. And she'll talk yeah. she talks a little about, you know, the way that women conjure magic, the way that men conjure magic is very, very different. And so what she teaches is how women become their magical selves. And um, so when you talk about the sacred feminine, it seems to me that it's pretty much the same as talking about, the, the, you know, the magical feminine, the part of us that is unique to our sex. And uh, we're both b- men and women are equally magic. It's just that the magic is different and it's conjured differently. 
I, you so know, there's a I sacred, was, in that respect, there's a sacred masculine as well. Sorry to interrupt him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I totally get it because I would, uh, every now and then, I would, I'm not trying to be a smart ass, but I go, you know, if you really look at all, most of the religions of the world, they're all masculine principles and masculine based. So if a woman, you being a woman, I'm talking to them, what would your religion look like? Because I know that there is a very distinct difference, and you're still yeah. bringing it up. So there is something very different about how women experience the world and how they experience divinity, and that is different than the way men experience it. However, you know, men seems to be the the dominant force at the moment, and now we're starting to see a much stronger feminine voice out in the world, you know. And so yeah. now the question yeah. is, is are they, are they trying to eat the men you know, men try to subject the women, and now are the women going to try to do essentially the same thing and eat the men? And now they, you know, there's this whole thing about demasculating men. So I, I find well, that that's yeah. not the right approach, but that's, that's what's happening. I I don't know. I, I don't think that's actually what's happening. You know, pendulum swing, pendulum swing one direction and then yeah. the other. And if 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 some women come across as demasculizing men, I think it's that it's that pendulum swing. The in actuality, any group of women that I've been with that I have talked to talk about equality and the bringing about of the space where the female voice and the male voice are both loved, both respected, both listened to equally. And that yes. is that that equality, that egalitarian mindset, if you will, is a more feminine mindset. Yeah, and you know what? There's comp- it's complementary. That's the thing. Everything's complementary. Yeah. We hey, need listen, both. we're down to about three minutes. We're exactly, I agree. Um hey listen, we got three minutes left to go in the show. So I ha- I'm going to give you two uh, two things. One, you know, is there any last words that you have about Jesus? And if you can, be quick about it. And then also just let us know what your contact information is. And uh, and then we'll just wrap up the show there and how, how you can get contacted and what your books are. Okay, great. Um, yes, uh, there is one maxim that is at the top of the oh. list for Yeshua. What? Okay, hold on, hold on. We got one minute left, so I guess you're just going to have to just say, "Where can we contact you?" Okay, um, I ca- no, I got to give this maxim. It's be love, accept love, give love. That's it. You do oh, that, perfect. you're you're perfect. golden, and it's easy to get a hold of me. Ignite the life you crave. Dot com. Ignite the life you crave. Dot com. You can get a hold of me uh, on the contact page. It's all there. Okay, thank you. All right, well, that concludes the show. Uh, Corinne, you were terrific. Thank you so much for coming on. And I want to thank all of my listeners. I hope you enjoyed the show. And truly, I appreciate your time for listening. And again, please click the following and subscribe buttons on our channels. And you can also find me on Facebook. So without further ado, let's journey together. Good night and have a great tomorrow.